If you were to Google 15 of the most amazing women in the Bible, or you accessed a contemporary listing, you will find, you'll discover a similar cast of characters. Almost every list will have Eve, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Miriam, Hannah, Deborah, Ruth, and Naomi, as well as all the numerous Marys in the New Testament. But what's astounding to me, really, about these compilations is that they almost universally overlook a woman who has, I believe, one of the most radical and compelling testimonies in all of Scripture. A woman, by the way, in which no bad thing is ever said, ever recorded. A woman who becomes the mother of nations. And a woman who finds herself in a very exclusive list of characters who speak face-to-face with Jesus himself in the Old Testament. This woman, well, her name is Hagar. Hagar's story is presented to us in two different places, and the Genesis record, chapter 16, as well as chapter 21, will be in both places this morning. Let's start, though, Genesis 16, beginning with verse 1. We read, now Sarai, Abram's wife, they become Sarah and Abraham. Sarah had bore Abram no children. She had, we're told, an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. I can't bear children. Please go in or lay with my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. This was a customary practice in ancient days as well as really in our culture now. We're told that Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And Abram had dwelt twelve, ten years in the land of Canaan. So Abram went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when Sarai saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. An overreaction. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her. Hagar fled from her presence. Hagar is introduced to us as the Egyptian maidservant of Abram's wife Sarai. Back in Genesis 12, verse 16, we're told how Pharaoh had gifted to Abram male and female servants in an attempt to win the hand of his wife. Full story, Pharaoh was operating under the premise that Sarai was, in actuality, uh, Abram's sister. We can assume that Hagar was included in this transaction. While impossible to say with any type of certainty, rabbinical tradition, and it's interesting, claims that Hagar might have very well been the daughter of Pharaoh, kind of, You give me your sister, I'll give you my daughter, tit for tat. Ethnically, Abram and Sarah had been born in Ur of the Chaldeans. They were Chaldean. Hagar was Egyptian. With the thousand mile or so divide between these two regions, Hagar has very little, if not anything in common culturally, with her new masters. Against her will. She had no say in the matter. Hagar's ripped from her family, ripped from her community, 
given to this wealthy nomad she knows nothing about. And she now finds herself living miles away, north of Egypt, in the land of Canaan. In verse 3, we're told this plan to have Hagar serve as a surrogate for Abram and Sarai to have a child, and therefore provide an heir, occurred specifically after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. These two, Abram and Sarai, had been promised years ago by God that he would provide them a son, a son of promise. Now that Abram is 86 years old, and Sarai a spry 77, they decide they can no longer wait. They're no longer going to wait on God to provide his promise. Instead, they're going to take matters into their own hands. We aren't given Hagar's specific age here. We can reason. She'd likely been enslaved as a child, potentially an early teenager. Meaning that by the time we get to this particular story, she's at least old enough to get pregnant. I personally figure Hagar is likely in her early 20s. In the course of time, Hagar has become family to Abram and Sarai as her maid. There's no question. Serving around the house, the tents. She became close to Sarai and trusted. She'd have to be trusted for such a task. While Hagar, again, has no say in the situation, she lovingly submits to the will of her masters, seeing it probably as an honor to be picked, to be a surrogate. In many ways, providing Abram an heir would dramatically change her position and status within the home. In the end, Hagar sleeps with old bones and ends up pregnant, just as they had intended. Tragically, though, what happens next is really a shame. Struggling under the reality that Hagar's fertility now proved that she had been the cause of their inability to have children, Sarai, she's immediately filled with regret. She regrets her decision. Not only does she blame Abram, but she takes out her emotional distress on poor Hagar. We read, and when Sarai saw Hagar had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. This word despised, it lends to the idea that, that Sarai's basically given Hagar the cold shoulder. Sadly, instead of standing up to his wife on Hagar's behalf, I mean, she is pregnant with his child, Abram compounds the situation. By capitulating to Sarai. We read him telling her, The maid, she's in your hand. She's under your authority, your control. Do to her as you please. Not a good move. We read, as a result, Sarai dealt harshly with her. So at first she despised her. Now she's dealing harshly. This Hebrew word, dealt harshly, it indicates that Sarai goes from kind of ignoring Hagar to now becoming actively vindictive towards her. Sarai's literally becoming uh, occupied. She's now like busying herself with making this young pregnant maiden's life miserable. When you read this, you have to feel for Hagar, don't you? But she's done nothing wrong. She's submitted to every wish. She's served admirably. But in turn, she's received nothing but grief from her friend Sarai. And she's received no defense from Abram, the father of her unborn child. 
her treatment here is nothing shy than, than unwarranted abuse. And as such, we read Hagar fled from Sarai's presence. And could you really blame her? Well, verse 7, we read, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? The 1994 Rednecks translation of this verse reads as follows. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from? Cotton Eye Joe. Many people really don't know this, but Hagar translates into the Hebrew as cotton eye. <laughs> Look at Hagar's answer. She says, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. So the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for a multitude. They'll be, you, you won't be able to even number them. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. Then Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Here I have seen him who sees me. Therefore the well was called Ber Laharoi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. Ishmael to Abram. Here you have this young pregnant slave girl fleeing an out of control, vindictive, abusive Sarah. And no doubt Hagar is struggling with the raw emotions of why this was happening. I mean, what had she done wrong? Here she is, fearing not just for her life, but the life of her unborn child. Hagar is the quintessential victim. She's been unfairly treated and abandoned, abused by those she trusted. And we're still the perpetrators inflicting the harm, claim to walk with God. Hagar is on the run and presently finds herself, according to the text, in an area near Kadesh at a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. Now, the reason that these details are significant is the way to Shur was actually an ancient trade route that connected Canaan with Egypt. Basically, Hagar fleeing Abram and Sarah. She's heading south. Why? She's trying to make her way home to Egypt. Hagar's life, it's been flipped upside down. But it's important to point out, uh, while she's fleeing, our text has no record of her ever crying out to God. Did you notice that? It's not as though she's praying. It's not as though she's seeking any type of divine revelation or instruction. She's not even pleading for God's direct intervention. And yet, notice, we read, the angel of the Lord found her. This word translated angel, it means messenger or representative. The use of this definitive article, the, tells us this particular representative was unique to all others. 
look again at verse 10. We read, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will. Before then later justifying his intervention by adding in verse 11, the Lord has heard your affliction. Like What we have here is the angel of the Lord speaking to Hagar as the Lord, not necessarily for the Lord. But realize, this is not just a physical representative coming from the Lord, but instead the physical representation of the Lord. As with so many others in Scripture, the angel of the Lord is what we call a Christophany, or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. In addition to Jesus himself coming down to find Hagar, it becomes immediately evident that he also knows Hagar and is aware of her situation. Jesus calls to her. He says, Hagar, Sarah's maid. Before then posing to her two simple questions. Where have you come from? And Hagar, where are you going? You see, Jesus, right from the beginning, wants Hagar to be aware he knows her, knows her situation, but he wants her to retrace really the journey of her life. In the original Hebrew, this question, it's more loaded than the way it translates into English. The Lord isn't asking Hagar where she's going, as if Jesus didn't know where she was going. Rather, he's, he's asking, Hagar, where do you want to go? It's as, it's as though Jesus is asking her, Hagar, please take a moment and think about things. Like, where are you going? What do you hope to accomplish? How is this going to end up? The, the Lord wants her to consider her past journey, but he wants her to consider her future destiny, the direction her life was heading. Ultimately, Jesus instructed Hagar to return to Sarah. And, and what? <coughs> to submit herself <coughs> under her hand. Though a conflict had arisen between she and Sarah. The best place for her and her unborn son, for the time being, would be the home of Abram. Like Running to Egypt would only compound her problems, wouldn't solve them. In the end, Jesus invites her <coughs> to do something really bold with her life, to trust him with her circumstances by returning and submitting to Sarah. Once again, it's obvious that Hagar recognizes this angel, the angel, was no angel at all. As she reflects on the exchange, she makes this amazing statement. <clears throat> she says, I have seen him who sees me. The implications are that she recognizes she's just had a face-to-face -face conversation with God and lived to tell about it. After Jesus departs, we're told that Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. I love this. The Hebrew construct of this very unique name for God can be translated as he is the God who sees me and attends to me. The name communicates more than God being cognitively aware of her, but that he was actively taking care of her. Hagar also names the well, Ber La Roy, or literally, the well of him that lives 
and sees me. The first takeaway I want you to have by examining the life of Hagar is how Jesus uses a terrible situation in her life to reveal himself to her in a profound and powerful way. I don't, I don't mean this <clears throat> as a slight against Hagar. But let's be real. Hagar, she's a nobody. In fact, Hagar is not important at all in any way to the overarching narrative of the Bible. This story of redemption. Not only that, but Hagar doesn't really do anything that's noteworthy. Like the only reason we know her name is because Abram made a foolish decision to leave the promised land because of famine and go to Egypt. It was a terrible decision. Apart from that, she would have never been given to Abraham, would have never become Sarah's maid. Once more, of all of the servants that Abram had, the only reason we know of Hagar is because she was selected by Sarah to sleep with Abram. Like you, The case can be made that Hagar, the only reason we know of Hagar at all, is because of two specific mistakes of Abram. Aside from this, Hagar, remember, on the run fleeing, she's not doing anything to appeal to God for His intervention, for His revelation. Hagar is a pagan heading back to Egypt. And yet her life is recorded in Scripture for one reason. While insignificant to everyone else, she was significant to Jesus. Don't miss this. From the worldly perspective, Hagar was a nobody. A nobody to everyone but the Lord. You see, Jesus loved Hagar. And he had a plan for her life. He had a plan for the life of her unborn son. Even though Hagar wasn't seeking Jesus or requesting his help in an act of God's amazing grace, Jesus stepped out of heaven, came to earth, and found her. He sought her out and responded to her deepest need. <laughs> As we sing, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. And I don't deserve it. Still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Genesis 16 closes with Hagar being obedient. She returns. She bears Abram a son that God had named Ishmael. And she proceeds to live in harmony with Sarah for the next 13 or so years. That said, Sarah finally becomes pregnant as God had promised she's going to have Isaac and it's when this happens that the original friction kind of rears back up flip over just a few pages to the right to Genesis 21 and let's begin with verse 8 we read so Isaac this son of promise he grew and was weaned so this is the son between Sarah and Abraham and Abraham as a result made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned and Sarah saw during this celebration, this festival, she saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. So 
this being Ishmael scoffing. Therefore, Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Now the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son, his love for Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman, Hagar. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called, yet I will make also a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because Ishmael is your seed. Verse 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread, skin of water, and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then Hagar departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. <laughs> she gets lost. And the water and the skin is used up. And she placed Ishmael under one of the shrubs. Then Hagar went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. Hagar and Ishmael have been forced to, to leave the protection of Abraham's home. Since the wilderness of Beersheba is mostly desert, they're lost. It doesn't take long for their ration of bread and water to run out, leaving both Hagar and her son in a terrible situation. Things seem foreboding. In the bleak midwinter, Hagar, has resigned herself to the reality both she and her son were going to die. I mean, it's hard to paint a more heart-wrenching, depressing situation. Unable to watch Ishmael suffering due to dehydration. Our text tells us that Hagar places him under a shrub, sits opposite him, and in desperation lifts up her voice and she weeps. Don't forget, this is not the first time Hagar finds herself in a dicey situation. However, there are a few notable differences. Back in Genesis 16, the first time, well, she fled. This time, she's being sent away. The first time, she's an unbeliever, uninterested in the things of God. This time, that's much different. She cries out to the Lord for His help. Unique to so many others, Hagar had spoken with Jesus face to face. She had a relationship with him. As an anguished and helpless Hagar lifts up her voice and weeps on account of everything that had transpired, I can imagine her cries were directed towards heaven. Like in this moment of fear over everything that had transpired, this vulnerability. She's making her appeal to the God who sees. I'm sure she's asking, God, do you still see? Do you see me? Do you know what's happening? If so, where are you? I could use your help. For the second time, Hagar finds herself in a tough spot. And she's done nothing to deserve it. She's committed no crime, no sin. As a matter of fact, for the last 13 years, she's, she's been obedient to Jesus' command to submit herself under Sarah's authority. Hagar, again, is a victim who's been caught up in a situation she didn't cause and she has no control over. 
Not only has Sarah finally gotten her pound of flesh, but it was Abraham who cast both she and Ishmael away. I'm sure Hagar was flabbergasted, caught off guard when Abraham comes to her, this great man of faith, turning his back on his own son as he tells her she's got to go. How could could he do such a thing? And to make matters worse, how does Abraham justify his decision? Well, initially he's torn on what to do. He loves Ishmael. It wasn't until God interjected and instructs him to listen to Sarah that Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. I mean, consider the moment when Abraham tells Hagar that it was God who confirmed that she and Ishmael had to go. Like, not only in this moment has she been betrayed by Abraham and Sarah, but it would now also appear that God, the God who sees, has abandoned her. Like, there's no way around the fact that God had sanctioned the entire situation Hagar and Ishmael are facing. While personally torn up by his options, the truth is Abraham acted out of an obedience to God's word. Meaning this dire situation facing Hagar was actually placing her in the very center of God's will for her life and the life of her son. I don't think it's far-fetched to imagine that as Hagar sat there under the desert sun weeping, crying out, her prayer sounded centered on why. Why, God? I imagine she's, she's racking her brain. What, what did I do wrong? God, for the last 13 years, I've just been obedient. I took a bold step. I trusted you with my life. I came back. I submitted myself under the hand of Sarah. God. What about all those promises you made so many years before about my son? I trusted you. Are you really going to let me down now? Hagar's situation, (laughs) it appeared hopeless. She's in the desert without water, not a good place to be. It's only a matter of time until she and Ishmael would be dead. At this point, nothing could be done. All of her energies are exhausted. Hagar is at the end of her rope, beyond despair. She's reached the point she can go no further. Nothing she can do. Hagar knew Jesus. But you can imagine that her present situation filled her heart with quite a bit of doubt. She's afraid. Had God really led them into the wilderness to perish? Was God going to fail them in their time of need? Was God going to renege on his promises? At this point of complete and total despondency, all Hagar can do is lift up her voice and weep. Let me ask, have you ever been in such a situation that challenges what you know about Jesus? A situation that challenges your belief in the surety of his promises? Have you ever been in a situation like Hagar where you've done nothing to bring these present present and pressing difficulties upon yourself? Instead, you find yourself in a moment, in a trial, in a situation where you're just caught up in events that are outside of your control. (laughs) We all have, haven't we? Have you ever reached a moment where all you can do 
is cry out to God and weep. Look at verse 17. We're told that God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad. And Ishmael grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. This would be northwestern Saudi Arabia, uh, along the eastern shore of the Red Sea. And we're told that Hagar took for Ishmael a wife from the land of Egypt. It really shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that in the very place, the very moment, when all hope was lost, and Hagar is in desperation, she's lifting up her voice, she's crying out to the Lord, that in that moment, God called to her out of heaven. As it pertains to the tough situations that God's will might lead you into, never forget, Jesus is not only aware, not only does He hear, but He'll respond in your time of need. Look again at what the angel of God asked Hagar from the throne room of heaven. What ails you, Hagar? Now, sadly, this English translation, what ails you, Hagar, of the ancient Hebrew, fails to convey what God's actually articulating. Like in the original language, if you study this, only one word is recorded. The word, Hagar. And connecting her ailment, what ails you, Hagar, with her name, what the translators are doing is that they're, they're conveying that God was doing more than just identifying Hagar by name. Like he's saying her name in a tone that acknowledged how the situation was affecting her, what ails you, and in a voice she'd immediately recognize. Like consider, again, the word Jesus. The first word Jesus, the angel of the Lord, spoke to Hagar back in Genesis 16, verse 8. What was the, what was the first word? Hagar. Her name. Like, I can imagine, as she's sitting there weeping and crying and crying out to the Lord, when this voice comes from heaven with the word, Hagar. And that moment, what is, she remembers. She recognizes the voice. This is not anyone. This was the Lord, the God who sees. Now that <laughs> he has her attention, Jesus gives her a simple instruction. It's simple, but it is an instruction that challenges her, especially her perspective on her predicament. Jesus says, Hagar, fear not. Like in saying this, Jesus was seeking to turn Hagar's attention off of her present situation and onto the one in control of her present situation. It's as though Jesus is speaking to her from heaven saying, Hagar, I see you, I love you. And even though things appear hopeless, 
Look to me. Do you really have anything to fear? Also notice why she didn't need to fear. Jesus says, I heard the voice of the lad where he is. Now, so much of the scene up until this point has, has focused on the anguish of Hagar. Hagar placing her son under the bush, going a bow shot away, crying and lifting up her voice. But just off screen, under that shrub, we have Ishmael. We have a whole nother set of events happening. And note, Ishmael is not a young boy. This word lad implies that, that he's a teenager. He's 13 years old. He is fully aware of what's transpiring. He knows their situation. He knows it's desperate. He's thirsty. It's hopeless. Aside from this, as Abraham's son, keep in mind that Ishmael was not ignorant of the things of God. Truth be told, he has an incredible heritage, a wonderful spiritual acumen. As just one of the many examples, Ishmael is one of the very few people in all of the Bible and all of Scripture that God specifically names. And yet, while Ishmael knew of God, it's not until this very passage, this moment, that we have any evidence at all of him actually knowing God for himself. Like Ishmael's under that shrub, and he can hear the cries of his mother. He can hear through her tears an appeal for God to help. He knew they'd been given a raw deal. He knew the situation wasn't promising. And yet upon hearing the crying of his mother, the weeping of his mom before the Lord, something within Ishmael begins to stir. What he heard coming from his mother, it was real and it was genuine. His mom was making a true and honest appeal to Jesus, the Jesus she had told him stories about. The Jesus that had named him. Inspired by the faith of his mother, Ishmael, under that shrub, he begins to pray for himself. Parents, one of the mistakes I think we often make is trying to shield our trials from our children. We do that to protect them, but the truth is your children have a good sense of what's going on in your home. Now, they might not know it, the particulars, on an intellectual basis, but, but kids have an incredible way of sensing when something is off, when you're stressed, when you're anxious, when you're fearful. Here's why your attitude in those moments are so important. Your kids are watching you how you'll respond, what you'll do, how you'll act. Your faith. Hagar's prayers to God and a crisis. Prayers overheard by her teenage son proved to be a powerful influence in his own walk with God. How interesting that God responded to Hagar's cries when he heard the voice of the lad. Now, why would the knowledge that Ishmael had been praying serve to calm Hagar's fears? Hagar now knows that her son 
has decided to have a personal relationship with God for himself. You know, it's not an accident that following this whole incident, we're told so God was with the lad. Like the implication is that a change had occurred in Ishmael through the event. Like no longer was Jesus just the God of Abraham. No longer was Jesus the God of Hagar. From this point moving forward, Jesus would also be the God of Ishmael, the God he'd serve. Like in a profound way, this is Ishmael's conversion. Let me ask you, parent. If you knew your present trial, whatever it is you're facing, if you knew how you handled that would lead to your child's profession of faith, that your faith in your trial would make Jesus so real in their life that they would be a follower. If you knew that, would you resist it? I think not. Like This explains why Jesus then instructs her to arise, to lift up the lad, to hold him with her hand, before he again reiterates the same promise he had given her many years before that he'd make Ishmael into a great nation. You see, before God could fulfill his promise to Hagar, what he would do in Ishmael's life, two things had to occur. One, Ishmael had to separate from Isaac. There's a lot of reasons for that, but this is one of them. He had to be his own man, independent. But secondly, Ishmael, for God to do the work he wanted to do in that boy's life, he had to have a personal relationship with God for himself. In order for God to accomplish his will in Ishmael's life, everything that had happened was necessary. After revealing to Hagar his ultimate purpose behind their turn of unfortunate events, God still, though, has one more profound lesson he needed to communicate. We read that after these things, God opened Hagar's eyes. And what happens? She saw a well of water. Like not only had God worked through this situation to accomplish his will, but this well would take care of their needs. Practically, it would quench their thirst. Like understand the language here doesn't imply that God placed a well of water along their path that wasn't presently already there. As if, you know, God dropped a well out of nowhere. Instead, what the language implies is that the miracle seems to be that Hagar was unable to see the well right in front of her until God opened her eyes. Like the irony is that Hagar and her son were dying of thirst when a well was within reach. The remedy to her affliction was right in front of her. The problem? She couldn't see it. I I don't think it's an accident that in Hagar's first interaction with Jesus, she's also found by the Lord next to a well. And in that exchange, she ultimately gives Jesus the name, you are the God who sees. Only for now, in this second interaction with Jesus, to have God give her sight so that she could see what? A well, right in front of her. There is no doubt, by employing these two things, the ability to see, you're the God who sees, and a well, 
Jesus is trying to remind Hagar of an important reality. She'd grown afraid. Why? Because she'd lost sight of the fact that Jesus was and is the God who sees. Though she didn't know why any of these things were happening in her life, the truth is that there was no reason at all for her to fear since Jesus was always in control. And yet, what is so profound about this exchange, and the point that you and I should be, should be mindful of, that we should pay close attention to, is that God wasn't providing a solution to Hagar's problem. On the contrary, God wanted Hagar to see that the solution to her problem had always been right in front of her. She just couldn't see it. I'm convinced, beyond remembering, that Jesus knew all along what she was going through. That when the Lord opened her eyes, it wasn't to simply see a well. Jesus wanted Hagar to remember what that well represented. It represented that moment that she had seen God for herself and her life had changed forever. Hagar had been overtaken by both fear and doubt for a simple reason, a relatable reason. She had allowed her circumstances to take her eyes off of Jesus. While the well was right in front of her, Hagar had allowed her situation to blind her from seeing the ultimate solution. How easy it is to grow so consumed with our current trial that we fail to see our ever-present Savior. In closing, if you're hurting, lost, or unsure where your life might be heading because of the difficulties that you're facing, if you're sitting there watching right now with zero expectations of encountering the God of the universe this morning on your couch, in your PJs, with your cup of coffee, I want you to know the Lord has not only heard of your affliction, but Jesus has left His throne in heaven in order to find you, to seek you, so that He might reveal Himself to you in the most relevant of ways. Jesus, this morning, right now, wants to minister to your heart by His grace. Jesus, my friend, is more than the God who sees. The story of Hagar teaches us that He's also the God who cares. As you consider what's next, Jesus, this morning, is asking you the same two questions He asked Hagar many years ago. Where have you come from? And where are you going? Where is your life heading? What's your destiny? Understand, it's the very fact that God can use your darkest moments and your most daunting situations to reveal Himself in the most personal of ways. Friend, that's what makes His grace so amazing. Christian, when God's will leads you down a difficult road, <laughs> when you inevitably find yourself in a desert that causes your heart 
to be flooded with fear and doubt and anxiety. Like Hagar, may I exhort you to sit and cry out to the Lord. It's okay to be real. You can be raw. It's okay to weep and to even question. The truth, you may never know who's listening and what impact your faith and Jesus may be having. But here's why it's okay to cry out to God in such a place of desperation. <laughs> you not only serve a God who sees and a God who cares, but Jesus is a God who speaks. While His will may lead you into difficult situations, situations that are trying and will stretch your faith in Him, stretch your faith to the max, Circumstances that might even bring you to a breaking point where it's hopeless and you're desperate. Friend, it's his word that speaks through the void, reminding you that he has a reason behind whatever it is you're facing. And it's true, Jesus might not reveal his ultimate will like he does with Hagar. But there is one thing Jesus' word will always open your eyes to see. There's a well whose spring runs eternal. There's a well right in front of you. You don't have to perish. You don't have to remain thirsty. There's a well right in front of you that will never, ever, ever, ever cease to supply all that you need. In John chapter 7, we read that on the last day, the, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out. The Temple Mount is packed to capacity. They're doing this water ceremony. Everyone's quiet. But the silence is interrupted. As the priests are pouring out this water onto, onto the altar, Jesus cries out for all to hear. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He is the well. Jesus says, he who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John then adds a little commentary. He says that Jesus said this concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. <laughs> Hagar and Jesus. An interesting story, but an incredible one that teaches us, that testifies of the goodness of His grace. If you don't know Jesus, He knows you. In fact, right now, He's speaking to you. Will you listen? If you'll consider where you've been and consider where your life is presently heading, I think you'll conclude that the path he's offering, the path included in following him, it makes sense. He wants to give your life meaning and purpose. He wants to give you a plan. He cares for you. He wants to accomplish through your life things you could never imagine. If you let him. And Christian, 
if you're struggling under the weight of a trial that you're facing, may I encourage you to shift your gaze from the things in front of you onto Jesus who is over you. Yeah, you may be in a desert, (laughs) but you don't have to go thirsty. Spring up a well within my soul. Spring up a well and make me whole. Spring up a well and give to me that life abundantly. This morning, may we all come again to the well and drink of the living water he so willingly provides. So, Father, Lord, that's what we ask.